Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 20th, 2020. Coming up, we talk with CU Boulder sociologist Andrea Tilstra about the term deaths of despair and how there's more than meets the eye about the shortened life expectancy in the U.S., both over the last few years and now in the time of COVID-19. I think this spans broader than just empathy with the college students. I think that we need to practice empathy and understanding with individuals of all ages in this time. The word demographics applies to the scientific analysis of statistics about population, such as how many people are in each age group, or what groups of people die from an illness versus people who don't. When we are flooded with demographic statistics, take the Worldometer site for COVID-19 new infections and new deaths, or the CU Boulder COVID-ready dashboard for COVID infections at CU Boulder. Demographics is part of analysis about what type of person is likely to vote for Trump or Biden in the national elections. So many numbers that often conflict. So how to make sense of all these numbers and analyses? Well, the reality is we can't always do that, and especially when we're looking ahead. But looking back at a surprising demographic puzzle can reveal the kinds of questions and answers that can help guide perspectives both looking back and maybe in the future. So today, we'll talk with a CU Boulder PhD candidate in sociology who is also a graduate research assistant at the CU Population Center in the Institute of Behavioral Science. Her name is Andrea Tilstra. Tilstra's specialty is how demographic techniques can help answer questions about population health. Tilstra was a co-author of a pretty famous CU Boulder study a few years ago that pushed back on the concept that what drove a reduction in U.S. average lifespan in the early 2000s was a lack of economic opportunity that triggered deaths of despair. Tilster's research does acknowledge the troubles that come from economic hardship, but her team found an even stronger driver of reduction in U.S. average lifespan. For more, here's a conversation with Andrea Tilstra, recorded last week on the CU Boulder campus, just after CU's recent COVID-19 lockdowns lifted. Andrea Tilstra, we're sitting here at CU Boulder on a very special day because this happens to be the day when the university has opened back up after a lockdown due to COVID-19. As you look around, what do you see? Shelley, it is my first time on campus since I want to say April and it's a bit of a ghost town around here, although there there's small smatterings of students and parents walking through campus, usually in groups of one to three and There's a handful with masks and still, unfortunately, a handful without. It's a mandatory on campus to wear masks, and and yet we've seen probably 15% of the people we've seen have not been wearing masks. Correct. We're wearing masks. We are, yes. But it isn't the same as it was last year at this time, is it? Certainly not, especially as on warm days like this, you would traditionally see students gathered and the open spaces around campus, um, for instance, the, the quad near Norlin and 
typically you would see students sitting outside and studying and unfortunately that's not the reality right now, although perhaps fortunately. Yes, we're seeing a huge swath of beautiful green lawn, beautiful trees, and I can count, including ourselves, six people out here. Six people and a handful of squirrels. Yes, the squirrels seem very bold now. <laughs> beautiful day for this, but usually there would be a hundred people out here. Yes. Now, Andrea Tilstra, you are a sociologist, and one of your more famous papers has been about what caused deaths of despair. At least that was the term for it. I'm not explaining this well. You better explain this. Sorry thing. It was about three or four years ago now. In 2017. Correct. So myself and my two co-authors, Ryan Masters, who is the senior and lead author on these papers, as well as Dan Simon, another graduate student in the sociology department. We published some work um, pushing back actually against the language of deaths of despair saying that it was problematic to lump together three disparate causes of death. Now, deaths of despair is a term that you can see even today. It's just really caught the imagination of people. It was coined by two Nobel Prize winning economists from Princeton. Can you explain where that term comes from and what they said causes the shortening of life in the United States compared to what it used to be. Sure thing. So uh, like you mentioned, the term did come from two economists, um, Case and Deaton out of Princeton, and initially coined as a way to lump together three causes of death, deaths related to alcohol-related um, poisonings, uh, drug-related deaths, and finally suicide. And in their initial paper and their initial argument, Case and Deaton stated that um, they believed it was a cohort of white Americans that were increasingly experiencing despair and that ultimately led to them engaging in these unhealthy health behaviors, um, such as alcohol and drug consumption, as well as, in some instances, taking their own lives. People like in Appalachia who were losing their jobs and didn't know what else to do, so they gave up and died. It was kind of the way that they characterized this. Yes, so again, initially they, they capitalized on this, this language of despair and saying that the world today in the United States is particularly difficult for a specific cohort. And, and the reason I keep emphasizing the word cohort is in their initial argument, they said it was just a, a specific age group. So people that were born in specific years. But myself and my co-authors, we push back against this and instead argue that it's what we call a period effect, which means it's, it's happening in a specific time period. So it's affecting many people, regardless of what age they are and regardless of what year they were born in. And we could argue that the coronavirus pandemic is also a period effect. It's affecting everyone. Well, good for you for bringing up the coronavirus, because I was just going to say that we'll get to COVID-19 in a minute, but I wanted to give some context for how sociologists look at these things. And we are aware that COVID-19 is affecting people's death rates in the United States in some way right now. This is not the only time that's been examined. And as you say, three years ago, it was examined that, gosh, lifespans are getting a little shorter now. And the Princeton group said it's especially in young adults, middle age, somewhere in there, those people are dying more often and it's deaths of despair. And their solution was to say, we need more education policies so that we can retrain these people. We need more things to help them feel better. We need more economic stimulus packages. And that will probably solve these deaths of despair and get the lifespan of Americans back up to normal. 
Is that a fair characterization? Um, so I don't want to speak on behalf of Case and Deaton and what their initial arguments were with regard to policy implementations and how to better it. And I also don't want to speak out against those policies because I very much am in support of things like better education, etc. However, to better address this quote-unquote deaths of despair um, situation, uh, myself and, and my co-authors, again, in our initial piece, argue that it's largely driven by the drug epidemic. And so in order to address the majority of these causes, we need to address what's happening with opioids. Andrea Tilstra, three years ago, people were not as aware of how strongly the prescription opioids and other painkillers were driving death rates to go up in the United States. You're some of the first researchers to point out, you may have been the first ones to publicly say, wait a second, this is a strong signal. These prescription drugs and these painkillers are a strong signal that's matching in with when people are dying. Now, again, you better translate back into sociology language. Um, I, I first want to be cautious and say that I'm not sure if we were the first ones to say it. We, we did pick up some traction with how we said it, and I think largely because we pushed back against this, this language of deaths of despair, and we don't think that it's safe to lump together uh, disparate causes of death. And, and what you found out was that the increase in suicides in the United States three years ago, when you look back in time, deaths were increasing in these age groups, seemed to coincide more with the FDA approving more painkillers. To clarify, um, we found that drug-related deaths were tracking alongside the FDA approval of Oxycontin. Oh, so it was Oxycontin and not fentanyl? Yes, so Oxycontin is the painkiller that was um, approved by the FDA and I think it was 90, between 96 and 99. I think it was introduced on scene in 96 and approved in 99. Correct me if I'm wrong on those years. But then what happened is after we go through the first wave of opioid use, which was largely prescription, we then entered the second wave, which was a transition towards heroin. Heroin is cheaper, easier to access. You don't need a prescription for it. And then finally, one would argue that we are in the third wave of it, which is largely focused on fentanyl. And so fentanyl, for those not familiar with it, is a synthetic heroin and it's much cheaper to make than heroin is and it's nearly a hundred times more lethal. What happens oftentimes is that an individual's heroin dosage might be cut with fentanyl either by themselves or by whomever they've purchased the drugs from. And if you don't realize that your drugs have been cut with fentanyl and you take what would be your traditional dosage of something, um, that can end up being too much for your body to handle. Okay, so it shifted from being prescription drugs to being street drugs. Sure. It's not to say that the prescription drug epidemic has disappeared entirely. It's just saying that those that no longer had access to those prescription drugs but were addicted to the opioids had to find a different place to get their drugs. And... The high from heroin is similar to the high from these prescription opioids. Well, one of your pushbacks against the deaths from despair argument was that some of the increase of these conditions actually tied in with national policies that changed, such as legalizing the prescriptions of OxyContin. 100%. We did see that the increase in drug-related deaths skyrocketed around the same time that 
the FDA approved oxy, and then the availability of oxy increased. It's important to note that there are geographic disparities in where we see the most uh, significant increases and when we see those increases. And they're oftentimes tracked alongside what we call pill mills. So where the prescription drug companies go and set up a, often, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this. Uh, you said pill mills. Correct, a pill mill. Oh my goodness, that doesn't sound so good. No. So a, a, again, a pill mill is just this situation where the prescription drug company is partnered with a doctor or doctors in the area and they the doctors receive some sort of compensation from the prescription drug company to prescribe these opioids. You're, let's say that you're a kid in sports and you were just injured in some way and you had this lingering back pain and your doctor instead of sending you to physical therapy said well just take these pills until you feel better. That would be kind of a pill mill kind of doctor. Um, I. I don't have as much experience interacting with pill mill doctors or the narratives that those doctors may have used, so I don't feel comfortable specifying. So that's the good thing. You're a sociologist and you won't let me do the journalism thing. <laughs> yes, I, I'm here to remind you, Shelley, of the macro level factors. And sometimes even when we want to talk at the micro level, it's, it can be detrimental. You know, even though there aren't a lot of people out here, Andrea Tilstra, sociologist at CU, there are some maintenance people out doing work and we're going to hear their machines now and then. Let's just keep talking anyway. All right. And again, this will tie back into COVID-19 in just a little bit, but we want to show the difference in how looking in a fine-grained way at a problem can give a little different perspective on it than just choosing one big picture idea. The other thing that you found in your study, in addition to the correlation between pill mills and the waves of drug overdoses that happened after that, is that you found that the rates of diabetes were increasing in the United States, and that seemed to increase death rates, people dying sooner as well. Yeah, to clarify that point, so we didn't explicitly look at uh, diabetes rates. We just looked at deaths related to metabolic diseases, so things related to things like heart conditions or that could ultimately be traced to things like diabetes. And what we see is that there has been an increase over time related to these metabolic diseases. When you say metabolic diseases, that includes obesity. Correct, yes. And one would argue that the reason we're just now seeing an increase in these metabolic-related deaths is that the obesity epidemic started how many years ago now, 20, 30 years ago? I shouldn't say started, really became a prominent public health issue 20 or 30 years ago. And so we're starting to see the long-term health consequences of that at the population level in the form of increasing uh, deaths from metabolic diseases. But that's an example of how policy decisions could be affected by where people think the cause comes from. If you think it's just an economic stimulus package that's needed, that might be a very good thing, but you might leave out programs to help people have lifestyle choices that promote less obesity, less diabetes, less heart disease. You might have programs that do something besides give someone a pill if they have physical pain. Uh, sure, and I think if we were to zoom out a little bit more, I think that many of my peers, fellow sociologists, fellow social demographers and health scientists would argue that in order to address health-related ailments, we need to focus on the macro level. We need to implement policies and interventions that can affect the most people 
oftentimes that means zooming out. Look at this interesting thing that you do, is to look at the broad picture, but also look at the details of what may be causing things. That just looking and saying, people were out of jobs, and that led to deaths of despair, you said, no, if you look more closely, you can see that people who were prescribed pills, painkiller pills, they ended up being more likely to die. And maybe they were also more uh, economically deprived and there were some other things that tied in, but that was a pretty strong signal from those pills. Sure, I just don't want to downplay the, the significance of economic downturns because they do play a pretty significant role in people's ability to access things like proper health care or proper health treatment. And so while these things certainly do matter, I also think that it's part of my job to kind of chirp in people's ears and say, well, have you considered X, Y, Z thing too? Because we often know that it's not just one thing that affects our health, it's a multitude of factors. And in order to get a more holistic look at people's health and health behaviors, we need to make sure we're identifying all those different factors. We're moving away from where the, all of the landscaping noise is. We're seeing a group that's actually out, some college students at an outdoor class. And it should be noted that they're all adequately socially distanced and wearing masks. Yes, it looks like there's a professor there teaching them. So that's one of the in-person classes at CU happening under some beautiful trees. Let's go around to the front of the library so that we don't interrupt them there. We've been talking about how the opioid epidemics and the diabetes metabolic syndrome. We could call it the obesity epidemic. Uh, those are still going on. And in fact, there is a strong case to be made for the fact that that may be increasing the risk of COVID-19. I think that COVID-19, as has been shown by many scientists, is exponentially worse for individuals with underlying pre-existing conditions and things like heart disease or diabetes could be considered these pre-existing conditions. And inherently, these are linked to the obesity epidemic. Okay. By looking at the deaths in aggregate, we're not trying to minimize individuals' experiences, whether it be a friend or family member who has died from COVID. It's not to minimize those experiences at all. The purpose behind looking at the macro and, and identifying these 210,000 plus deaths is to instead remind people of the magnitude of the issue. It's not just one or two smattering or random cases, it's a large proportion of the US population, a proportion that is much higher than the proportion of deaths experienced in our peer countries, say even in Canada, just to the north of us. By drawing attention to this, it highlights the necessity for creating some sort of population health level intervention, so some macro level intervention. Perhaps it's because of how it's been managed very specifically. Perhaps it's because we do have high rates of metabolic syndrome. And also age structure. So by that I mean what proportion of the population is at each specific age group. That's why we saw such high rates in Italy early on, is because Italy has an older population than many other European countries. Well, and that's a good point too, because most of the deaths in America have been in nursing homes. Much older people, much more health compromised people. Sure, and then also the added element of it being inside. And as we know, the virus tends to spread very quickly in indoor spaces if there's been prolonged exposure in those indoor spaces. 
what about the deaths of despair from lockdowns? And how many years ahead do we look for what may happen with that? There is a term deaths of despair being used for COVID-19 now about the economic problems, the isolation, all of those things. There are even speaking of nursing homes, data that show that even in nursing homes that don't have high rates of COVID-19 over the summer, there were more people who died, perhaps because their families can't come and see them anymore. Who knows? But there's something going on that's bigger than just the death from the virus itself. So there are serious health consequences associated with social isolationism, right? And we know that it can have prolonged consequences in addition to the more immediate feelings of loneliness and anxiety that might result from a pandemic, justifiably result. But I do want to remind folks, though, that there there is a more immediate health risk, and that is the virus itself. And so it's not to minimize the experiences of social isolationism and anxiety and depression, but rather remind people that we need to focus on the immediate killer and immediate um, disease and also remind ourselves that there are possible interventions for um, alleviating the long-term health consequences of that isolationism. What comes to mind to you as you say that? Um, so I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but I think that the first thing that comes to my mind is the importance of therapy and finding uh, unique ways of being connected to other folks. And I know and I recognize that a Zoom call is not the same as being in person with your friends and it's not fun and Zoom fatigue is definitely a real thing, right? But it's really important that folks prioritize finding unique ways to feel connected in order to stave off this immediate disease. Okay, so as an example, we're having a conversation where we're at least six feet apart with masks on, but we're not on a Zoom right now. We're actually outdoors in a beautiful place where we can look around and see what's happening. It's not as fatiguing as being on a Zoom call. Uh, Definitely not as fatiguing as being on a Zoom call. Um, Zoom calls, while wonderful for allowing us to teach large lectures over an online platform or to have meetings with folks across the country, Um, it's certainly not the same as uh, in-person interactions. And the wonderful thing about Boulder is that there's uh, an abundance of open spaces, of green spaces, to allow folks to have these interpersonal interactions that can be appropriately distanced, appropriately masked. There's something comforting about seeing some other people out there doing the same thing, that that's a side of life that can keep going. Uh, One thing that we do need to consider as we look forward is what this winter is going to bring. Um, With winter comes the decreased ability to have as much outdoor activities. Although one good thing about Boulder, right, is it snows one day and then the sun comes out the next day and your temperatures get warm enough that you can do something outside. But we need to think a little bit more creatively about what activities are going to look like in the winter. Because again, to reiterate the point that many others have already made, we know this disease can spread very easily inside spaces, so indoors over prolonged periods of contact. What other questions do you think are appropriate from a sociology standpoint? What are some other questions that are appropriate to ask for how to help the health of a person and help the health of the community? 
with this time where we're all having to change our lives. So I've been very impressed with the way that Boulder County Public Health has handled um, the increase in cases that we saw largely among the 18 to 22 year olds, the returning college students. I've been very impressed with the way they've handled it. I've also been very impressed um, at much of the work coming from the scientists here at CU Boulder. Folks like uh, Matt McQueen in particular have done a great job leading the contact tracing. Um, the one thing that I am curious about moving forward is what is it going to look like in the winter break interim? And one thing we ought to think a little bit more critically about is how we're going to handle students leaving and or then returning to campus for spring semester. What about two years from now? What do you think sociologists will be needing to look at two years from now? I think it's going to be really interesting to see how individuals interact with the world once we're able to uh, resume, again, quote unquote, normal life. Like what, what is normal is likely going to change. And I'm curious to see how people adapt to that moving forward and also what that means for our health behaviors, right? Like how, um, how do people feel connected with others? What, what activities do we engage in this? Do you feel sympathetic to the college age students, the undergrads who are here for the first time that we're expecting a normal college experience and instead it's a very different one. Oh, 100%. Like when I was 17 years old going to college, I could not have fathomed experiencing um, what these college students are currently experiencing. And so I think it's important for folks to remind themselves to be empathetic and understanding. I think this spans broader than just empathy with the college students. I think that we need to practice empathy and understanding with individuals of all ages in this time. I'm Shelley Schlender. Our guest has been CU Boulder sociologist Andrea Tilstra. We'll link to Tilstra's research on our website and we'll link to Boulder County data about COVID-19. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Jill Shong. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Shelley Slender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from local songwriter and guitarist Lynn Patrick. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.